Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 39 for May 11th, 2006, Buffer Overruns. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. Steve Gibson is on the line and we are ready to talk about uh, one of the number one, in fact, I think the, the prime cause of security flaws in software today. Hello, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you. It's great to talk to you. Things are going very well as summer has come and the sun is shining and I'm moving offices and I'm, if you only saw how everything is teetering on chairs and tabletops and I've kludged together a little recording setup so we can get this done. And well, we're on episode 39 and you believe and, it? and 52 is within sight. That's you know, amazing. Our, our first full year of security now. Are yeah. you running out of topics? No, I'm uh, it, actually the the user feedback is fantastic because it keeps me thinking about things. And if, if I don't take the topic directly, it gives me an idea for something else. So yeah. I've got an outline that, that I maintain, like whenever something occurs to me, I write it down because I don't want it to get away from me. Right. And uh, I think we've got lots of things to talk about. And, you know, people from the feedback I'm seeing, people are really enjoying this, Leo. So I'm I'm so glad we're doing it. Great news. Well, today we talk about buffer. You can either call them overflows or overruns. Yeah, I guess overrun is probably technically a little more accurate. Uh, as you mentioned, it is the this buffer overrun is the this pernicious problem that that it is the way so many of the contemporary security flaws are exploited essentially and. Now, this is going to be one of our heavier-duty episodes. It's one of those, okay, now, focus. <laughs> <laughs> have a cup of coffee but, now. But but I promise, as we have achieved before, that if if people listen carefully and and get what I'm talking about, there will, there's another one of those aha experiences here. People, by the end of this, are going to understand why it seems so difficult to to write secure software um, with, with exactly how these sorts of exploits occur. So I'm, I'm really excited about this, this number 39. So uh, what is uh, a buffer overrun? Well, we need to start and lay a little bit of foundation here. One of the, one of the things that, that is happening is programming in general is becoming incredibly complex. And, and, Programming is moving towards a, a sort of a component model where, where programmers are no longer writing everything themselves from scratch. Mm-hmm. They're, they're inherently, in order, to, in order to develop the kinds of programs that, that are, are interesting to people, they have to use other people's work. You know, it's like, you know, the standing on the shoulders of giants and, and, and reaching higher than you could by yourself. The problem is those giants may not have been concerned about security. So 
you're in you're more and more as we move forward people are are using other people's code code written by you know like whether it's 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 libraries or it's a a an incre- an increasingly um, all-encompassing operating system underneath you. I mean, you know, we all know just from our own experience that, for example, XP is huge. Even Linux is growing. I think it's it's grown four times larger in the last five years. That mm. is, Linux has. I mean, mm-hmm. the so I mean, and, and the reason is all these new services and features and facilities are being added that programs running on top of them can use. And then, of course, in the Windows world, we have this whole new .NET thing that has come along recently. And so there's a whole nother programming environment. And and so, so essentially what happens is a programmer ends up relying upon the function of many subsystems that they themselves did not write. And so... They're they're having to assume and presume. I mean, they have to that those things are working correctly. So, in many cases, it's not even their fault. Although their application, which relies on these subsystems, ends up bearing the brunt of responsibility because you know it was you know their application that had the problem, even though the actual flaw may have been sort of somewhere else or in their communication with these other subsystems. So so this this component programming model that we see more and more often is part of the problem. You know, my programs, the stuff I write, are pretty simple. And and I happen to be sort of a dinosaur as we know, writing these things in assembly language to a much lesser degree I depend upon other things because I'm I'm writing simple programs and I'm sort of staying away from from you know these really huge projects well, which are really no longer feasible for one person you know we're talking in in modern corporations producing programs you know they've got teams of programmers and and there's another problem is when when it's just me writing a program I know all aspects of what I'm writing. I've I've got it outlined. I've got it in my head. You know, it's it's I wrote it all. So there's there's no communication problem between me and myself. But in team efforts, you do have sort of a you know this person will be writing this chunk of the system, and somebody else will be writing another chunk which is very different. And these these separately written chunks have to interact. Well, they'll produce specifications typically for for the way their parts fit together, but mistakes in that communication. It's like, oh, I thought you were going to do this. I mean, and the problem, of course, is when these mistakes are not found, there's presumptions that people made. And again, these, these, these boundaries between separate pieces of work, whether it's a, a commercial component library or it's something that somebody else in your own organization working on the same project wrote any kind of misunderstandings can cause sort of a a mismatch and what we're going to look at here in detail is exactly i mean really exactly how that happens but but so it it really does it, it does sort of blur the lines of responsibility and it explains why even with the best of intentions i mean even people now focused on security if 
other portions of the system were written without a focus on security, which really does require a, a special sort of mindset, or if they were written before security was an issue and they're still being used, this is a problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I mean, a perfect example is you know at the beginning of the year we we all tumbled around on that Windows Metafile issue and and assuming you know Microsoft's uh, stance, they they understood now that what they were doing before should absolutely no longer have still been done, but it was still being done. So there was old code that had been moved along from, you know, from Windows 98 and NT up into modern times where security is a much bigger issue today than it was before. And there was a gotcha, you know, in the process. The other thing that goes on with programming, and I want to discuss this just before I get into the details of of how the, the stack and buffers and things work is is the programmer's mindset I, I know as a programmer that what I'm trying to do is is get my code to work that's a completely different mindset than somebody who is attacking my code trying to find a way for it not to work. Mm. And and I know, for example, you know when I'm when I'm writing text, uh, you know I wrote the for example the the tech talk column every week for eight years for Infoworld magazine years and years ago. I would write a column and I would hand it to a couple of of, of friends of mine or or actually they were employees and have them proof it. The point is I c- I can't proof my own column because I know what I meant. And my eyes won't see right. the words that are wrong. They, you know, they just won't. I can read it three times really carefully and not see the mistake. Someone reading it who doesn't have sort of an emotional buy-in will read it and say, "Oh, Steve, you you meant this word." I, and I look at, it and I go, "Oh, how did I not see it?" But right. It, it, right. it's you know, it, 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 it's ego buy-in. I want it to be accurate. It's it's. I know what I meant, and so my brain just sees it as I meant, not as I wrote. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly the same thing happens with code, maybe even to a greater degree due to the nature of, it, of, of how complex the practice is. And, of course, it's the complexity that is what intrigues programmers. It's why many, you know, so many of us really enjoy programming is it's, it's an, an intellectually engaging thing. But... But what I find when I'm debugging a program that that isn't working is I can stare at the code. It looks just fine to me. I mean, no matter how much I look at it, it looks fine. So it's when a debugger, you, you single step through the code and you see it do the wrong thing. That I mean, you stare at it and you go, oh, I mean – Suddenly, like you, I mean, you have to have your face rubbed in the problem <laughs> before you get it. I mean, it, it, there's that level of sort of like assumption of correctness. It's it's a it's an interesting experience for a programmer to have, where when, you know when the debugger just says, "Look, moron, this is wrong," and it's like, "Oh, why? You know, how did I write it that way? Why didn't I see it that way?" It just it, it's the kind of thing that happens all the time. So. So my point is that it is anyone writing code 
is trying to get it to work. You know, in most situations, they're in a team, they're under deadline pressure. It all, these programs always take longer to write than anyone expects just because that's the nature of the beast. You know, people are putting in long hours and and you know, they're 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 desperate to to check that code in and say, "Okay, I'm done with my part or or, or this is now working." And so everything about that process is getting it to work as opposed to looking at how to break it, which is a a fundamentally different, I mean radically different way of looking at the same code. And that, of course, is the perspective of the, the malicious hacker who is is trying to find a way into a system, trying to find a way to break code, is the hacker is looking at it not thinking how wonderful it is that it, that it works they're specifically looking for ways to get it not to work ways where assumptions which the programmer had or the team or the programmer communicating to something they didn't write you know a a, a third party object or or module or component where those assumptions have broken down and in those in those little interstices you can you can get a foothold and and cause security problems. You know that's literally what it's about. Well, that's a programmer calling saying, "Thank you for making all these excuses for me, Steve. I could tell you're a programmer, uh, but really, it also is a mistake and a fairly serious mistake. And and sometimes I wonder why they're still making these mistakes. Well, it's funny because Steve Ballmer, apparently, who's now the president of Microsoft, oh, apparently crazy. Uh, well, it does, and, and th- there was one famous outburst. I don't remember exactly when it was. I think it was it was after XP. We remember Microsoft claimed that XP was going to be the most secure version of Windows that had ever been created, and and I objected as a security person to that statement because you can't claim that something is going to be right. more secure. History has to judge that retrospectively and decide whether or not it was true and of course until service pack 2 which really really made some major changes to xp windows xp was the least secure windows that had ever been created i mean all kinds of problems that arose from all the new code that had been added to xp i mean it's it's inevitable so anyway so apparently steve balmer once went into a, a group of programmers and, and screamed out loud, you know, why can't we fix these buffer overruns? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, 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 and so let's talk about exactly what this is, how it's possible for hackers outside of, of a system to, to basically inject their code into the system. To, to understand this, it's necessary, I mean, at the level of detail that I think people will really be fascinated by, it's necessary to understand something known as, as the stack. Um, you know, computers have memory, and it's possible to, 
to ask the computer to give you a block of memory, sort of borrow it from the system for your own uses, for whatever purpose to like, like to store data in, to to accept input from a user, to assemble something that that you're going to send out for whatever reason, a, a a so-called buffer of memory, and then when you're done with it, you 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 free it or release it back to the system. Well, there's a there's an architecture that is developed in our contemporary computers, where which is which is known as the stack, and what the what the stack is i i don't find it actually useful to use the the sort of the stack of plates in the cafeteria model you know the idea being that, that you put plates in this little spring loaded thing and the and the plates go down and then you take them off and and they pop back up i mean that's sort of the the analogy that is used sort of in in a, in a crude way but it it doesn't give us what we need in order to understand what happens with buffer overruns? Well, so, it is important, though, that you, just so you understand that it's a last-in, first-out stack. I mean, that's how data goes in and goes out. Uh, it's not, kinda. It's not in order. But uh, but actually, I mean, well, okay. The, the way it really works is the is the reason there's really a problem. Oh, I see. So, All right. Okay, I know where you're going. All right. So 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 what the, what the stack is is a it's a a large region of sort of uncommitted memory so so think of when a program is is started up the the system the operating system gives this running program its own stack which is and so just call it a stack as sort of an abstract term what it actually is is a is a a long buffer actually a almost a bottomless buffer that you don't need to worry about running out of. Um, if people want to picture this, um, think of like maybe a, um, I don't know, like an, an unwound long roll of toilet paper or or just a, a really long banner, for example, um, oriented vertically from the top down. And and for for reasons that we'll see in a second, memory is allocated in this stack from the top downwards so when when the stack is empty that is it doesn't contain anything there's a pointer to the very top of the stack it's at the top because there's nothing above it and and if the program wants to allocate some memory from the stack What's, what the, it's very simply done. This, this stack pointer, as it's called, is moved downwards by the amount of memory that the program wants to allocate for its use. The pointer is pointing to the next available space. Right. And, and so if the pointer is moved downwards to, by a certain amount, then, then what the pointer is now pointing at is the, is the beginning of that amount of space that was just allocated on the stack so so if you visualize the, this 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 pointer being moved down like by 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 a thousand bytes then then from that point upwards there is now a thousand bytes the beginning of which is pointed to by this pointer so so the way the system works is many different things use this stack sort of all at the same time. It's sort of a general purpose scratch pad. So 
a, a, a the program might move it down and to allocate some space, then move it down a different amount to allocate some more, and down a little more to allocate, you know, like three different regions of buffer. And then as these things are no longer needed, the pointer is moved back upwards, back up toward the very top where the stack would then again be empty. So so it, it's a very convenient system from... From a from a programming standpoint, and it's inexpensive in terms of the the technology being used. That is to say, it's it's virtually instantaneous to move to just to change the value of this pointer by a certain amount. And because it's so efficient, it's the system which has come into you know virtually universal practice in modern computers. It's used very heavily in subroutine calls. You. Save a context, you jump into the subroutine, and then you can pop the context back out. And well, in fact, that's a perfect segue to to explaining how how a subroutine is 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 essentially called or invoked, which is where this becomes a critical problem. Now you manage if, it by hand because you're an assembly language programmer, but compilers do this all automatically. The the the, the C programmer doesn't see the stack particularly. Right, they're they're not at all aware of it. Um, but but it, it's still happening in the background and is the source of vulnerability. What what happens when um, a program is running along and and wants to call a subroutine? A subroutine sort of just being sort of a a chunk of code which has been written and is standing by to perform a certain function. And and that code might be called by many different other locations in the program for example it's say say that it was a, a little piece piece of code to to turn everything into uppercase and you might want to do that if you're searching for something and it's much faster to search all uppercase or all all of a known case than it is to do a, a mixed case search so you might want to just turn a, a a buffer of text into all uppercase and in many places in your program you would have the occasion to do that so you only write this this code to do the uppercase conversion once and then you you call that function that subroutine whenever you want that to be done for you so that so that's sort of an example of of the power of a subroutine or a function call is that it 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 provides resources that the program can use wherever it is well when you when you call this code to execute the function, the, the code somehow needs to return control to you. It needs to come back to where you called it from. And, and since you might be calling it from many different places in the program, that, 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 re, that return to you can't be sort of fixed. It can't be hard-coded. It has to be, it has to be dynamic. So the way the system handles a so-called a, a subroutine call or a function call is when you when you call the subroutine the the address of the next instruction below that call is put on the stack it, it, it's it's pushed on the stack as we say meaning that the, that stack pointer is moved down just just by four bytes by by thirty two bits and and at that location, the address of the next instruction below where the call was made is stored. It's called the return address. The return address, exactly. 
And so then the computer jumps to the location you have called this subroutine and and begins to execute the code. Now the subroutine will use the same stack you're using. That is, say that the subroutine for its work, for example, it's gonna it's gonna take the, the text buffer you give it and and create a new buffer that's gonna be lower that's gonna be uppercase, for example. So it could take the stack pointer and move it down by however much memory it needs and then use that region of the stack from where the stack pointer now is upwards as long as it wants. When it's when it's done using it, it puts the stack pointer back where it was. And in order for the subroutine to return to you, it, it literally executes a, an instruction called return. And that, that instruction pops that return address off the stack, meaning it moves the pointer back up now it has those 32 bits that were stuck that were, that were saved there which is the instruction address of of the location below where this subroutine was called from so the the processor jumps to that address and continues executing sort of seamlessly so in the in the main flow of the code you you call the subroutine to for example uppercase a buffer it does whatever work it needs maybe borrowing some of the memory from from the from, from the program's stack as a scratch pad for doing whatever it's doing it then it then releases that memory which puts the stack pointer back where it was when it, it first got control then the subroutine returns using the value stored on the stack returns to where it was called from so so that's the whole mechanism now how does this break how does it fail um, and a, a really interesting example is where where some programmers are paying attention to the sign of their data and others are not yeah, positive or negative whether the positive, is positive or, or negative exactly in in binary let's talk a little bit about how sign is handled because that that'll factor into this and then people are going to have one of those aha experiences here pretty quickly um, in in binary numbering um, all bits being zero means zero and as you begin increase as you begin turning the bits on in the binary sequence the by sort of universal agreement that represents increasing values in a in 32 bits which is what most of our processors still are those who haven't moved up to 64 bits but we'll take the 32 bit case in in this instance in 32 bits you have up from from basically 0 to a value a little bigger than 4 billion and then you get to all ones and then if you add one more to that it sort of it overflows or wraps around back to zero well that's a so-called an unsigned value and it's it's regarded for example in in C as it's called a uint an unsigned integer and it's that always has, positive it can't be negative it, well exactly because every bit combination between zero and that maximum at four billion that represents a positive value from zero up to that four billion quantity but 
in many instances in in programming it is useful to have a signed value that is where you do have negative you you're able to represent negative quantities as well as positive ones so the way this is handled in in the actual storage in the computer is that this 4 billion space that 32 bits gives us is chopped in half half of them are are positive from 0 to 2 billion and the the second half are negative and actually it goes from negative 2 billion back down towards 0 so so for example if we if we if we count up towards with a signed assigned counter we count up towards larger values we'll get to something above 2 billion and if we go one more what happens is and, and actually that maximum value has the top bit being 0 and all the rest are ones we then add one more to that which which all these ones overflow making the top bit a 1 and actually that's called the sign bit in a signed number and it's so so when that when that top bit is a 1 that means that the rest of the bits represent a negative quantity so okay so imagine that some code a program wants to accept some data from another program from a user from a script running on a web page from wherever it wants to make sure though that the data that it's receiving will fit within the buffer that it's allocated and and so say the the programmer says okay say that it, it, it's a URL that that is going to be accepted at this part of the code the programmer thinks okay how long can a URL probably be well maybe a thousand characters you know that that's a really long URL even by today's standards so so the programmer allocates a a thousand character buffer by moving the stack pointer down as we've seen and then has access to the the thousand characters from where the stack pointer is upwards so that's sort of his the programmer's scratch pad area now the programmer say that this URL has a length it's provided with a length and and then the data well the programmer checks the length that is declared to make sure that it's it's less than a thousand characters long to make sure that the data will fit within this buffer and if so then then the programmer might call another subroutine to copy the provided data into the buffer well if the programmer made a mistake and just just not even thinking about it was was thinking that the value being provided was um, was a um, a signed value which really doesn't make any sense because you you it makes no sense to have a negative length on data data is always going to be an unsigned length so 
But just because the program is used to typing int, 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 which stands for integer, which is inherently a signed value, instead of u int, which is unsigned integer, if the programmer declared this value, suspected, or sorry, expected that the value were going to be um, signed, or just didn't think about it, then if somebody malicious declared the value to be negative 5, then when the programmer compares the length to the length that's being declared for this URL to the buffer size he's allocated, 1,000, you know, is negative 5 less than 1,000? Well, yes, it is if it's a signed value because negative 5 is less mm-hmm. than 1,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the programmer says, oh, okay, this URL I'm about to store will fit within my 1,000-byte buffer. So he hands, the programmer now calls a subroutine to copy the data from wherever it's coming into his buffer. So he provides the negative 5 and the, the, um, the address of the buffer to a subroutine. Well, now, the subroutine, which somebody else has written, knows that lengths cannot be negative. I mean, that makes no sense. So in the subroutine, the length is handled as it really should be as an unsigned value. Well, we know, because we just looked at how, how values are stored in binary, an a, a negative value is if it's treated unsigned is actually a very huge positive value. So, so the subroutine which has been asked to copy the URL sees a really large value as the amount of data it's supposed to copy, which it says, okay, if that's what the guy who called me wants me to do, that's what I'll do. So, the the subroutine copies this URL that might be, for example, 4K, because the 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 the, the or or say that the value was shown as 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 minus 4K, but and but the the program the original program did the comparison said is is minus 4K less than 1K the the buffer size yep that's less no problem. Well, the program, the, the, the subroutine, which is doing the copying, realizes this is unsigned. I mean, treats it as an unsigned value, which means it's a really huge value. That program copies the data way more than the program that called it expected. For example, 4K worth of data trying to fit it into this programmer's provided 1k buffer. So the well, problem is because they're thinking of it as an unsigned or as a signed value, but it really is an unsigned value. They're it's it's too big for them. Exactly. And some clever hacker somewhere realized that the code that was calling this copying subroutine was written inaccurately and that a for example telling it it was negative 4k would slip by its guard. It Actually, would get the, under. The way they find this out is by trial and error. They just try it until they find something that breaks. Really, yeah, very often. Yeah, and so so now in our model, we've we've called a subroutine, and it has written more than the one k that we expected. Now remember that 
to to create this 1k buffer we moved our stack pointer down ma making a region above the stack pointer that is a thousand bytes worth available well if this if this more than 1k is copied if like 4k were copied it would fill up the 1k and continue on upwards overwriting all kinds of I mean whatever else was on the stack above that location really I mean wiping things out so at the, at that point control is returned to the program that called it which doesn't realize anything really bad has just happened it finishes up its work and releases that 1k buffer it allocated which which moves the stack pointer back up by a thousand bytes but now instead of the next thing on the stack being the return instruction remember that if this is going to then return to whoever called it it's going to the the the, the stack is is popped and there's a the value on the stack is the address to be returned well that's been overwritten maliciously on the stack so that the return value is no longer accurate if the if a programmer who was trying to exploit this did his job correctly what's there is instead the address of other code right there on the stack which will then get executed oh very and, clever and that's exactly the way somebody from outside a computer system could take advantage of a little mistake you know just literally the letter u for unsigned was left off of a variable declaration in c and since c as you mentioned leo c handles these things for programmers when c sees that it's an int comparison as opposed to an unsigned integer comparison that's the way c compiles the code which causes this negative value to slip under the radar of a programmer who was really trying to do the right thing they were trying to say don't copy more than a k mm -hmm. making sure that the url is a k byte or shorter but in fact because of this missing unsignedness a subroutine that did the copying thought it had permission to copy 4k and sometimes that, it's even worse. I mean, sometimes the programmer uses an, uh, an unchecked uh, string copy uh, without a range on it and just kind of blasts data in there by accident. So there. Well, you're right. You know, it's certainly the case that maybe the programmer wasn't checking at all. As right. you said, that can happen. But but even when you're like trying to do the right thing, it's possible to to end up with code which is insecure in a very weird way cuz cuz think about it if you as long as you provide a positive length it's going to work right. you could try to give him 4k a positive 4k he'll reject it. He'll say, his no, code no. would say oh, nope what do you think I'm exactly <laughs> that's too big right. but but because of this mistake of so just sort of handing responsibility off between different parts of the system it's possible to find these and so literally code was written onto the stack which is then executed and at that point your computer is in the hands of a hacker yeah. it is potentially taken over and this is the way all those worms that we used to be having code read and nimda and all these things where no 
No, I mean, and, and those, for example, were, were mistakes in Microsoft's Windows Server that had these kinds of vulnerabilities that, that allowed worms to just literally inject their own code without the system's knowledge or permission into the operating stack of the server and then run that code and take it over. It's pretty impressive, though, uh, accomplishment even on the hacker's part because it isn't just kind of randomly sticking code in there. They've got to figure out where to put it. They've got to figure out where the return address would be and make sure it jumps into another area where it's their code. I mean, I imagine there's a lot of trial and error, and they're and they're very clever at doing that. Oh, Leo, I mean, it, it, this is this is advanced programming to yeah. be a hacker like this. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you you have to do this. You have to know the system at a level below, certainly below the so-called script kiddies, mm-hmm. and and even really below the level of most C-style programmers who are who are taking advantage of the convenience of of the C language being an abstraction of the machine, and it's that abstraction that allows their code to be portable among different architectures, whereas yeah. the compiler is doing all of the detailed work. Well, hackers, in order to exploit this level of flaw, I mean, they're, they're absolutely operating down at the machine level and, I mean, truly knowing what they're doing. Mm, it's very impressive and, and amazing that it happens so often, given all of the things that have to go wrong and all the things that have to go right to make it work. Well, it's, it's again, you know, hearkening back to the beginning of this podcast where I, I really wanted to give people, I mean, not to make excuses, but to mean honestly to explain why these problems keep happening. Right. It's just, this is a, you know, programming is a complex task which is becoming increasingly complex and we're relying on many more subsystems that that we didn't ourselves write. So inherently, you make assumptions about how something you're going to use, some subroutine library, you know, the operating system, whatever, about you make assumptions about what it's going to do, and when those don't quite match up, that creates a little opportunity for error. And, and, and you know, programs literally have to be perfect in order not to have any bugs like this. Yeah, and it just, yeah. it's incredibly difficult to make them so. It is. It's remarkable. Well, uh, once again, you've explained the inexplicable. <laughs> Well, one bit of good news I want to talk about, uh, just briefly to wrap up this topic, is is something was, which was introduced in Windows Service XP Service Pack 2, which is, is the acronym is DEP, D-E-P, stands for Data Execution Prevention. And it's one of the things, sort of in answer to Steve Ballmer's war cry or, or frustration cry mm-hmm. about why they can't solve this problem. Because one of the things that's interesting is the stack that we've been talking about is really only for storing data. It's not for storing code. Now, back in the dawn of Windows, literally Windows 3.1, way back, you know, the, the early Windows, before we had graphics accelerator chips, the very clever guys who wrote GDI, the graphics device interface portion of Windows, they, in order to make the display work quickly, they would put code on the stack. That is literally 
the w- Windows would write a program to move data quickly from one place on the screen to another back before the hardware in the display adapter would do that for them. So there, there, there is some history of code running, I mean, good code, deliberate code running on the stack. But in general, and certainly much more so in modern times, there, the stack should really only contain data. It ought to be temporary variables. It ought to be subroutine return addresses, as we were talking about, or, or, or buffers that are being allocated by the program for its temporary use, which it then releases. So there really isn't a reason to allow the stack to be executable. Well, a very cool feature in the latest processor hardware from AMD and Intel is available to essentially mark the stack as non-executable code, that was non-executable memory, so that, so that if a buffer overrun occurred and the processor attempted to jump into the data on the stack, they would immediately throw up an, a, a system exception and not allow that to continue, com- thus completely, completely shutting down the whole buffer overrun problem. Now, this data execution uh, prevention has been available since Service Pack 2. Um, only the newer Intel and AMD hardware supports it. Um, there's a sort of a weaker software-only version which which can be turned on, which provides some protection. The other problem is that there are some programs that won't run if if their stack is locked down and not allowed to execute because of some of the tricks that the programmers or the compiler are playing. So so there's a little bit of a of a transition phase here where and, and Windows handles that because if you've got one of these these DEP enabled processors and you've got it turned on, you you are able to make exceptions for known programs that have a problem with this. Anyone who wants to know more about it can can just Google uh, data execution prevention or DEP and and learn about it. It'll take you right to Microsoft's pages um, where you can see how to turn this on if you haven't messed around with it. It is a it's a really nice step forward, which is going to, you know, reasonably help for you know this whole class of security troubles. And you know, if we had it years ago, things would be a lot better mm-hmm. than than they have been. But at least you know, we future hardware will support this. Future software can be expected to be compatible with it. And and. I'm not making excuses for programmers again. I mean, it, we do make mistakes. They're just so hard to prevent, especially when it's not even in our code. It's some code that we're relying on that somebody else wrote. So this is a really nice sort of prophylactic measure to protect your system from from remote code injection exploits. Yeah. Also, by the way, there are versions uh, of this uh, for uh, Linux and uh, some versions of BSD. So. Uh, and, and it's built into the hardware of the uh, processor, although the operating system has to enable it. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, great stuff, Steve. I really uh, I appreciate your taking the time to make this clear. It's something that, uh, uh, you know, I've tried to talk about in the past. We've had experts on the shows trying to explain it, but you did the best. Very, well, very clear. Well, it's... 
you know, as as a programmer, and because I'm down at the assembly language level, right. I'm I'm dealing with the stack on an intimate basis. You make so. your own stacks, your <laughs> exactly. own stack frames. Well, hey, by the way, I don't know if you saw it in the um, uh, uh, show notes or the comments to our show notes from uh, last episode, but there was a great. Uh, did you read Unlived Phalanx? Wrote a really nice. I guess you did because you responded to it. A really nice comment about Spinrite. He says, "I just wanted to." Right in here about how amazing Spinrite really is. I had a hard disk with a tax refund and a recent insurance claim go completely bonkers to the point where the moment you turn on the computer, it would crash and was no longer accessible by any other means. In under four hours, Spinrite restored the drive to full working order and allowed me to save every single bit of information on the drive. Woo! So when you hear Leo talk about Spinrite, he isn't just plugging a friend. He's telling the honest truth. And I, I am. Spinrite is the single best Disk recovery and maintenance tool yeah. ever written. I, I saw that. I just, I, you know, I mean, nice. obviously, Spinrite supports me, so I'm, I, I, I love it and I depend upon it. But I, we, we, you know, we get this email from people like that, the, the, the posting that you just read from last week, where you know, I mean, they really needed their stuff saved, and I just, I just really warms my heart. I when, bet it does. Yeah. yeah, when I'm able to help people like that. You can that. see more of these uh, testimonials at Spinrite, S-P-I-N-R-I-T-E dot info. And of course, you can get your copy of Spinrite. Everybody should have one from GRC dot com. That's where Steve hangs his hat. You'll, you'll also find at GRC dot com uh, the show notes for this show and all the past security nows, including 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired. And Elaine's great transcripts. She came back from her trip safe and sound, I hope. Yep, and she's ready to make a transcript of this one. <laughs> Transcribe some more. Welcome home, Elaine. We're glad, we, glad you made it back. Uh, and uh, that, again, is grc.com slash securitynow.htm. We, of course, want to thank our, our wonderful sponsor, the uh, Astero Corporation, the makers of the Astero Security Gateway software. You can get it at astaro.com. There's a free version for home users. Um, which is fantastic. If you've got an old machine, put it on there, and it turns your system into a firewall that is bar none the best. They they support open source. It's open source, so it's great. Uh, they also sell hardware. I have their Astero uh, 120, their gateway, and it's, it is really great. Highly recommended. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. I said Astero, and they want me to say Astaro, so I'm going to say Astaro. I think as long as people go there, they <laughs> probably won't be complaining Astaro. much. Hey, Steve, thank you so much. What are we going to do next week? I haven't even looked at my notes, but I'm sure we'll have something good. <laughs> well, you know, folks, keep uh, posting comments and suggestions and questions for Steve, because uh, as as always, I think he's inspired by the things you, uh, you ask and uh, suggest uh, to him. Actually, next week will be episode 40. Yep. So we'll be your questions and answers next week. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Perfect. Well, there's the answer to that question. <laughs> that was a simple one. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Have a great day, and uh, let the brain cool down a little bit now. I think uh, okay. ice baths would be a good thing. I know I need one. <laughs> Thanks. And we'll see you next Thursday on Security Now. Security Now.